Uh, Revelation chapter number 3, and I'd like to begin reading in verse number 14. The Word of God says, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. I want you to think about what he said. Let's read verse 15 and 16 again. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the privilege it is to be here tonight in your house. Now, Lord, I know it's so tempting to think of this as another Wednesday evening. Lord, I believe when we do that, we rob you of the uh, freedom and liberty to do in our hearts the work that I believe you wish to do. So, Lord, I pray that we would approach your word tonight with a reverence and an excitement to hear the message that you have for our hearts and our lives. Pray it would be made effective through the working of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that when we leave here, we all would have been examined by your word. And Lord, we all would have been drawn closer to you through our surrender and submission. Lord, we love you. and We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I'm very interested in what the Lord says in his condemnation, rebuke, however you'd like to say it, against the church of the Laodiceans. He says this about them. He says that his main contention with them is their lukewarmness. It's interesting that the Lord would say, I would thou were cold or hot. Now, we understand that the Lord is talking about their devotion and love of Jesus Christ. And what he's literally saying to them is this, I would that your heart was as cold as ice towards the things of God, or I would that your heart was, bur- that your heart was burning with passion and devotion towards the things of God. He says, but your problem is not that you are cold. Your problem is that you're somewhere in between. I want to preach to you on this thought this evening, the dangers of being a good Christian. You know, I think most people that are in the house of God on a Wednesday night are probably good Christians. Uh, You're not here tonight because uh, you're in trouble with the law. At least I don't think so. Uh, you're probably not here tonight because your whole world has crashed in because you've been living out of the will of God. Could I say it this way? You're not here tonight because you don't care. You're here because you do care. But there was a quote that I heard over the weekend, and, I, and y'all are going to be mad at me. I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't always tell the source of the quote, but I'm going to tell on myself and tell you where I heard this, and you're going to hate me for it. I was watching Arkansas almost beat Alabama on Saturday. Did any of you see that? And uh, But they had a quote from Nick Saban. I know you can get kicked out of a church for quoting Nick Saban in Tennessee, but the quote was this. They said that he often tells his team that good is the greatest enemy of great. Now stop and think about that for just a moment. That good is the chief and greatest enemy of the idea of great. I began to think about that, how it applied to the spiritual realm. You know, that is true, I believe, in the temporal realm. 
But I believe it is equally true in the spiritual realm. Our problem, I think, in the church today is not that we're terrible Christians. I mean, you're here tonight. You're in an independent, fundamental, premillennial, soul-winning, independent Baptist church. It preaches out of the King James Bible. You're in a church, we just got tracts printed up, we're excited about going out and reaching people. You're not here because you're a terrible Christian. You're here because you love the Word of God. You're here because you enjoy preaching. Uh, Some would say too much because you let me preach so long. You're here because you enjoy old-timey music and old-fashioned worship. Those aren't bad things. But understand there is a danger in being a good Christian. You see, the devil's chief deceit is not that we might trade that which is the greatest for that which is the worst, but rather if he can just get us to trade that which is the greatest for that which is second best, he's got our lives where he wants us to be. There's a good chance that the majority of us in this room are going to die in mediocrity, and I don't think that's the will of God for us. There's a good chance that the majority of us, and uh, you know, the, the preacher preached on it the other night, he talked about obituaries and, you know, the commitment that people have. And some people, you know, it, it says that they went to such and such church and uh, were members there. And some people, it says they were just to the Baptist faith. I think some of us, when we die, that the, the epitaph on our tombstone would read this, he was a pretty good Christian. And I think that in and of itself could be a condemnation. You see, when God looks at the church at Laodicea, his contention is not that they are terrible. Because God can deal with terrible Christians. His problem is that they're just pretty good. And I think there's three dangers that we have in this walk that we live in. I hope you'll think about them in your life tonight and consider the danger that they could be. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, Paul is talking about the testimony of their ministry. He's talking about the things that the Lord has done. And and really what Paul is talking about here is he's talking about the authenticity of their power in the gospel. There were some that were saying, oh, you know, Paul, he I mean, he, he writes a big letter, you know, but he's not much in person. And Paul, in describing this and condemning this, he classifies those uh, as being part of a comparative group. Look what it says in verse number 12. Just one verse we'll read here. He says, For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. You know what I think the first danger is in being a good Christian? is the danger of making comparisons and letting that govern your life and your Christian walk. What Paul was saying here is that the people that he is condemning, the group that he is classifying, when he talks about of them, of that group, what he's saying about them is the reason they live the way they do is because of the way they measure up relative to those that are around them. Can I give you an example How often have you heard people say something like this? I may not be the best, but I'm better than a lot of folks. There's a great danger there. Let me give you two reasons why. I believe it's dangerous because it gives an undue glory to those that are living for God. Have you ever heard somebody say something like this? I could never live for Christ the way they live for Christ. 
You know, oftentimes, and I think it is valuable to read biographies and to read history. Let me tell you something. God has blessed the church with some, some giants in, in the faith. And it's easy sometimes to look backwards and spend all of our time living in what has been. We look back and we think of great names and great men of God that have done great things for the cause of Christ. But oftentimes, if we make them the measure of our ministry and of our Christian walk, we'll look back and we'll say, you know, I could never do what they did. Could I remind you that they were flesh and blood, just like your flesh and blood? Let me tell you something. There ain't none of us great. We just have a great God. That's the truth of it. I mean, that's part of the problem I have with the heresy of Calvinism, the idea that God's picking a baseball team and He picked some and didn't pick others. Let me tell you something. There's not a one of us that's worthy. There's not a one of us that's anything worth talking about. And I don't care how high of a pedestal you put someone on, they're going to get knocked off of it sooner or later. It's always funny to me, and I, I, well, maybe I shouldn't even say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's always funny to me, you know, in a lot of ministries, people look up Charles Spurgeon. And, uh, And I think God did a lot of great things through Charles Spurgeon. I mean, that's the truth. A lot of people came to know Christ through him. But they get all teetotally tore up over the fact that Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars. Now, he did. It don't matter if you like that or not. He did. It don't matter if that G's and haws with your theology or your standards. He did. I've even heard people go to great extents to try to explain away the fact that he did and say that in his later ministry he gave it up and he quit and he is ashamed of it. But I witness testimony of the day that Charles Spurgeon dies tells us that Charles Spurgeon smoked cigars up till the day that he died. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? Here's what I'm getting at. It's silly to have an argument one way or the other. I'm not living to try to be like Charles Spurgeon. Guess what? God did use him. He had flaws. Guess what? If God uses me and you, it's not because of our flaws, but it's certainly in spite of our flaws. You say, you're telling me, preacher, that God could use a bearded, uh, cigar-smoking, pseudo-Calvinistic preacher? Well, evidently He did. But, you know, let me tell you something. God can use me with all my faults and failures as well. God can use you with all your faults and failures. It is a great lie to believe that God waits for somebody to reach perfection to use them. The truth of the matter is, God uses the weak things of this world, the small things of this world. But you know, there's a little bit of apathy and laziness in that philosophy, because you know what that does? That alleviates us of any guilt. Because we can say, well, I never do what they did, so I'll just sit back and do nothing. I believe that's unwise, don't you? I believe God calls it unwise. He says, with that philosophy, you become unwise. I believe that it's unwise because it gives an undue glory. But I believe it's unwise because in the other side of the road, in the other ditch, you get an undeserved gratification. You know, very often there's two sides to that equation. We look at some and we say, there's no use in trying because I could never live like they live. But the other side of the road we look and we say, but I don't have to try too hard because at least I'm not living like they live. Listen to somebody that had that attitude in Luke chapter 18. The Lord spoke this parable. It says, And He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Now, I understand the context, what we're about to read, and you do too. You've read the parable, the Pharisee and the publican. But it's interesting that the Lord does not say those that were trusting in the Old Testament law. Now, that's true about the Pharisees. They were trusting in their Judaism. 
But he does not say that he spoke this parable about those that were trusting in the Old Testament law. He does not say that he was, uh, they were trusting in the blood of bulls and of goats. He does not say that they were uh, trusting in any... He says they were trusting in their own righteousness. In other words, they said, you know, I think I'm pretty good. And they despised others because they didn't measure up to their standard. He says, two men went up into the temple to pray. The one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Let me tell you, the reason that man was unwise is because he could see the publican through the Pharisee's eyes, but he couldn't see the Pharisee through the Father's eyes. You know, part of the reason that that danger of comparison is so dangerous to a good Christian is because we are good Christians. Let me tell you something. It's very easy for the Sunday morning-only crowd to look at the Easter crowd and say, hey, at least I'm not like that Easter-only crowd. It's equally easy for the Sunday night crowd to look and say, hey, what's wrong with these Sunday morning-only Christians? And let me tell you, the grand danger to you on a Wednesday night in an independent fundamental Baptist church is to look around and say, hey, at least I'm not like those that are sitting at home tonight. Let me tell you something, that's unwise. You know why? Because the measure that we're to, uh, the, the standard that we're to measure ourselves against is the perfect sinless Son of God. And you know what happens when we do that? We never run out of things to work on in our lives. I don't care who you are. You've got faults. And I don't care who you are. If you're saved, you've got a big God. So there's no, you're without excuse, oh man. And you ought to get busy serving God. And that danger is present in your life, not because you're a bad Christian. That danger is there because you're a good Christian. Listen, the drunk that's down in the gutter, he don't look around and say, at least I'm not as drunk as the next guy usually. Most of the time, they can recognize that they're in a mess. But you and I, there's a great danger that we look around and say, hey, you know, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. Listen, I believe we ought to look backwards in our life at times. I believe we ought to keep a, a, a tally of how our walk is going. But I think there's even a danger in comparing ourselves with ourselves. You know, so oftentimes we say things like this. I'm not what I ought to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. Now, I understand the sentiment. Don't misunderstand me. I I do thank God that I'm not what I used to be. And I understand that the purpose in saying that is to say, I've got a lot of things to work on, but God's still been good in my life. But oftentimes that becomes a crutch for us to say, I'm not what I used to be. I'm better than I was then. Well, that may be true, but let me ask you this. Are you doing your best? Are you doing your best? That's a question only you can answer. I can't answer that for you. I can't tell you whether you're doing your best or not. You and God alone know whether you're doing your best. And that and that alone should be the measure of your spiritual growth. Am I giving everything that I have for the cause of Christ? Am I doing my absolute best? Not am I doing better than the guy next to me. Not am I doing better than I was a year ago. I mean, listen, there's a lot of us doing worse than we were a year ago. But I'm saying, we ought not even measure ourselves by a year ago. We ought to ask ourselves this simple question, am I doing my absolute best for the cause of Christ? Rather than comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. I think there's the danger of making comparison, but I think there's the danger of comfort. I think oftentimes the pursuit of comfort becomes a hindrance in our Christian walk. Now, don't misunderstand me. I, think, I don't think God's upset when we have comfort in life. 
But I do think comfort can become a God in our life. In fact, when Christ talked about serving mammon, you know what He was talking about. You understand that, right? He wasn't just talking about serving men, because if He was just talking about serving men, He would have said serving men. But He didn't say serving men. He said serving mammon. And what He was talking about is serving things that are temporal and things that appeal to the flesh. It's not that we're not to enjoy life. It's not that we should go around sad-faced all the time. And it's not that if there's something in our life that can make it better, that we ought not pursue it. But it's this, that we ought not pursue anything above the cause of Christ. That ought to have the preeminence in our life. In Matthew chapter 10, I'll just read a couple of verses. You can jot them down or turn there if you want to catch up with me. But verse 37 says this, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Let me tell you something, I, and I'm not going to fuss. I mean, we, we got, we've got a mixed bag, but our church is mostly you know, a lot of older folks. But, but let me just say, there's a lot of preaching to be done right there. I know a lot of families out of church today because they made their precious little one the God of their life. And pretty soon, everything, I mean, you know, pretty soon, Timmy's uh, sports games and, and Susie's dance classes and uh, their education. Let me tell you something. Education has become a god and, and an idol in this country. I believe you ought to be educated. I don't think there's anything wrong with being educated. I think you ought to better yourself academically. But let me tell you something. It don't matter if we get our kids in the best Ivy League college in the world. It don't matter if they come out making $300,000 a year. If they come out and if they haven't been saved and fall in love with Jesus Christ, we failed them. We failed them. That's not my message. There's a lot of preaching right there. He says, And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Can I give you a very valuable truth right now? Not everything that makes you more comfortable is what's best for you. We spend so much of our lives trying to get things together that I wonder what we're letting fall apart while we're trying to get everything together. I, I don't want you to misunderstand me tonight. I don't think God is against you getting a better job. I don't think God is against you working to provide for your family. I don't think God's uh, against you trying to get a better home or a better car, or whatever that might be. But I think we can make a God out of those things in our life. And I think we can get to the place where we think if we accomplish all that, we're okay. Rather than letting our love for Jesus Christ be the measure of our success. That ought to be the highlight of our life. How can I fall more in love with Christ? How can I do more for Him? Let me tell you something. I'd lot rather burn out and die broke on the street serving Jesus Christ than live to be 150 in a house the size of a Walmart and never have done anything for God. And I might die comfortable in that condition, but that doesn't mean I'll die consecrated in that condition. I think that comfort is dangerous because, number one, it crowns the flesh. It tells us that our comfort is the most important thing in our lives. You know what that has led to in our society? Uh, we, I don't know why, and I'm not just going to be uh, political tonight, but, I, but we were sitting around last night and we was watching the, the Democratic National Debate. And, uh, and can I give you a synopsis of the Democratic National Debate? Is that okay? This is my, this is my political commentary, okay? Uh, the, Bernie Sanders said, I'll give you anything you want for free. 
And Hillary Clinton said, what emails? (laughs) And I also will give you anything that you want for free. It was astounding to watch the audience applaud at free things being offered for them. And and I'm not implying Republicans are the answer to this thing. I mean, we're in a mess deeper than political parties. You understand that? We're in a mess deeper than political parties. And if you think either one of them can fix things, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Uh, There is a soul sickness in our country. And it goes deeper. It's deeper than politics can fix. I mean, I'm talking about, listen, I don't care if they dug Ronald Reagan up and dragged him up and stacked him against the podium. He couldn't fix things. Things are in a worse mess than politics could ever fix. But what I'm saying is this. There is an entire faction of society that does not give a single bit of regard. It doesn't matter if a man is an avowed socialist. If he'll promise them free stuff, he's good in their book. Now, you compare that to the day that most of you all grew up in, when if you even hinted that you were friendly with red communism, it gets you run out of a neighborhood. How did that happen? It happened because we raised a generation of young people that have crowned their flesh king in their lives. And they believe that everything around them exists for their own comfort. Let me tell you something. Oftentimes that finds its way into Christian worldview and ideology and philosophy. And you'll find that much of the preaching that takes place today tells you that God sits up on a throne in heaven just to work everything out for you and make life easier on you. I've got news for you. He, he, he likes to th- see things go good in our life. He works all things together for good in our lives. But He's not there simply for our comfort. He's there for His glory. And you're here for His glory as well. It crowns the flesh. I believe that's dangerous to make the flesh and our comfort the preeminent thing in our life. But I believe it quiets our faith when we live for comfort. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say. I don't believe we ought to be reckless. I don't believe we ought to be unwise or poor stewards of what God has blessed us with. But I do believe this. If you'll seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. It may not be in your time. It may be in His time. It may not be in the way you expect. But God orchestrates the events of our life for the strengthening of our faith. You understand that? He does not orchestrate the things in our life for the soundness of our minds or for the comfort of our spirits. He orchestrates every step of the way. He leadeth us in paths of righteousness. Why? For His name's sake. That's why He's doing what He's doing. He's doing it for His glory. He is doing it for our good, but that's because His glory is for our good. And oftentimes when we crown comfort, what it does is it causes us to pursue things that never force us to live by faith. Let me tell you something. This may shock you, but God doesn't need your money. Every single... You'll find this to be true. Giving in the Bible, and me and my wife were talking about this on the way in, in the Bible, you'll hear people say, well, Jesus talked about money more than anything. Well, I, I understand that, but can I tell you something, a little hint? Half the time when Jesus was talking about it, He was saying, don't worry about it, get busy serving me. He did reference it. He referenced it because it has so much to do with our lives. But His attitude and His approach to it was, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Take no thought for tomorrow. Take no thought for your reign. Don't worry about those things. I'll worry about those things. I'll take care of If you'll do my business, I'll take care of your business. 
And everything that God does, He, he, he orders our steps in a way that they must be steps of faith. Let me tell you something. If the, if the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and God has foreordained our steps uh, to good works or to walk in them, and God's commanded us to walk by faith and not by sight, why should it surprise us that the steps that God has ordered for our life must of necessity be steps of faith? It's all in accordance with His plan. I, I don't think comfort's a bad thing. Just like I don't think that being a good Christian is a bad thing, but I think there are some dangers along with it. Let me give you one more and I'll sit down and hush. I think there is a danger of making comparisons. I think there's a danger of comfort. But I think one of the greatest dangers that faces Christians that are good Christians, I'm not talking about bad Christians, I'm talking about Wednesday night Christians, one of your greatest dangers is marginal Christianity. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, remember what the Lord is saying in the church at Laodicea. He says about them, you say that you're, you're uh, rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. He said, but what you don't understand is if you could see it through my eyes, you'd realize you're poor and blind and wretched and naked. Let me tell you what the Lord said in Matthew chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. He's talking to the Pharisees and he says, Ye hypocrites, well did Esaias prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Now, I want you to stop. Look at this in a way you've probably not considered it. I want you to stop and think about these are people that drew nigh with their mouth. These aren't people that never talk about God. These are people that talk about the Lord. I want you to stop and consider that these are people that honor the Lord with their lips. When they talk about the Lord, they're not criticizing the Lord. They're talking about how good the Lord is. These are a people that worship the Lord. He says, in vain they do worship me, but these are people that are worshiping God. And these are people that are teaching the Word of God, or what they would claim is the Word of God, because he says, teaching for doctrines. You know what that means? You know, you understand the word doctrines means teachings? So he's saying they're teaching for teachings. In other words, they are claiming that what they are saying is Scripture, but it's really the commandments of men. In other words, these are a group of people that go to church, talk about God, honor God with their lips, that worship God, maybe people that are in teaching positions or people that are sharing the Word of God and trying to have an impact in their life, in others' lives. And the Lord says about these people that their heart is far from me. In other words, when you looked, on them on, looked at them on the outside, there was the appearance of commitment. The appearance of commitment. I'm not talking about the people that never darkened the doorstep of the church. I'm not talking about the people that die a drunkard's death and call on some preacher they've never met to preach their funeral. I'm talking about church people. That's who the Lord's talking about here, church people. I, I'm talking about the people that, that, uh, the people that their neighbors see them go to church. That's who the Lord's condemning here. And what is he condemning them for? It's interesting. He does not say they shouldn't draw nigh to him. He does not say they shouldn't honor him with their lips. He does not say they shouldn't worship him. He does not say they shouldn't teach. What he says is this. He says, if you're going to talk about me, then you ought to talk to me. Isn't that what he says? These people draw nigh to me with their mouth, but their heart is far from me. In other words, he's saying this. They come close with the mouth. But they don't come close with the heart. They have an external and a surface Christianity. 
me tell you what the most shocking thing that we're going to find when we get to heaven is not the things that God's going to say about the atheist or the Muslim, but the things that God's going to say about me and you. That's what we're going to find most shocking. I'm talking about the things that God's going to say about good Christians. They have the appearance of commitment. These aren't people that show up once a month to church. These are people that are there when the doors are open. But there is, though there is an external commitment, we see an appearance of commitment, there is an absence of consecration. You know what consecration is? It means to be set apart. To be set apart. When you consecrate something, that means that that is yours. It belongs to this particular uh, event or this particular job. This particular. Uh, let me give you an example. How many of y'all had, uh, had uh, dishes for company growing up? You remember having that? It might have been fine china. It might have been something. Come on now, help me now. I know it's Wednesday, but that don't mean it didn't happen. Come on, help me. How many of y'all growing up, your mama had that set of dishes that you never knew what food that, that came off of that tasted like? But when company would come, that was the fine china. That was for them. So those dishes, they were consecrated. They were set apart, set aside for a specific purpose and use. You didn't get those dishes out for any old thing. You didn't get those dishes out and throw them in the microwave. You didn't get those dishes out and uh, just make you a sandwich and put on. They were for special occasions. Can I say that that's what the Lord's attitude about me and you is? Hey, listen, your life is not just for any old thing. God has a special purpose in it. When you live your life for the world, you're living beneath what God expects of you and beneath the greatness that God has planned for your life. When you're just getting through to make it through, you're living beneath what God has for your life. You say, what do I do about that, preacher? How do I do anything different other than just trying to get by? Well, first off, you see that there is a grand purpose in your life. Something beyond earning a paycheck. Something beyond keeping a roof over your head. Because the Lord already said if you'd seek His kingdom first, He'd take care of those things. So in other words, you ought to see that God has a greater and grander purpose for your life. And then secondly, you ought to try to live according to that purpose. One of the things that I think is important, and let this be a segue. I, I promise you, I didn't have no intention of doing this when the Lord gave me this message, but I, but I ain't going to be ashamed of doing it. I, I think it's a good thing. Some of y'all are going to go out tomorrow, and you're going to go into a lost and dying world. And what are you going for? Are you going just to earn a paycheck? Are you going? Some of y'all are going to stay home tomorrow. You're going to clean the house. You're going to work on stuff. Let me ask you something. Did God give you tomorrow just to get through it? Or did God give you tomorrow to do something with it? We just had these printed up. You know, and we could have done this before. We had tracks before. I wonder how many of us will say, man, I want to do something with tomorrow. Something worthwhile. You understand that this little slip of paper, and it's not the paper, it's the gospel that's in it. That could make the eternal difference in someone's life. But here's the question. What are you satisfied with? You satisfied just being a good Christian? Good Christian. The Lord says about good Christians that they're poor and blind and naked and wretched. They don't even have a clue what it is they need in their life. I'll tell you what you and I need, what this preacher needs, and what this congregation needs. We need more than ever to fall in love with Jesus Christ, to quit with this marginal Christianity to quit with this, with this just Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night thing. I don't know if you realize this, but uh, God saved you to serve on more days than just two. And to get out and do something for Jesus Christ. Now, what are you satisfied with? I can't change anything in your life. 
I can't make you make any decisions tonight. I promise you, if you if you decide you're not going to make any de- decisions uh, or commitments to the Lord, I won't catch you at the door. I won't wrestle you to the ground. I won't uh, pick a fight with you. I won't give you the cold shoulder. I won't do none of that because it wouldn't do any good anyway. But you have a decision to make this evening about what you're satisfied with with your Christian walk. What are you going to do? You see, you can continue to be a good Christian. But I believe it's the will of God that we become great Christians. I believe it's the will of God that we do more. You say, Preacher, I'm doing a lot. Well, I know, but I believe God enables us to do more. You say, Preacher, I'm doing more than some. Well, you're not going to be judged according to some. You're going to be judged according to whether you did all you could do. So the question is, what do you want out of your Christian life? More importantly, what does God expect out of your Christian life?